Thank you, Ms. Christie, and good morning. Great to have you in the room here at Stonebridge Bible Church, and welcome those of you watching live stream, and welcome to those of you, this might be your first time, we're glad you're here. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you with petitions, with praise, with lament, with adoration, with thanksgiving, uh, with a host of things. We recognize first that you are God, that you are sovereign, that in your providential care we live in a fallen world as fallen people, but we want to honor you and live wisely the way you designed and intended for us, even in our fallen estate. We thank you for your word and your spirit and your people that help uh, corral us and direct us. Uh, We bring to you for your hearing, for your aid, that you would listen to our prayer, the many people in our church who are suffering with the Cancer, chemotherapy, loss of a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a friend, um, the challenges in marriage, the challenges in parenting, uh, the scuffles that parents can have trying to raise kids, the pressures of finances, the economy, just the stress and strain of life that can distract us all. And to take a pause, to take a breath, to realize and recognize you're God and we're not, to humbly acknowledge our sin and pride, to readily and greedily grasp your word and your grace, to live by faith, not by sight, to live trusting in you, not in ourselves. Um, I am continually amazed and curious why you hear the prayers of a sinful man. I am amazed and curious why you love a sinner like me and yet your word tells me you do. And so we cling tenaciously to the fact that you love us even though we are royally messed up. We're selfish, we're peevish, we're uh, pouting people. We can be angry and critical and withdrawn and all kinds of things, and yet you love. You are our Father. You are the God and King of our universe. You are the Savior of our souls. You're the great physician Help us not trust you only when we desperately need you, but in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment, that you are God and we are not. We thank you for your word that we have so accessible. We pray that as a church, especially in the West, but around the world, that you would continue to afford us the privilege of opening the Bible without persecution. We pray for those governing and authority that you would limit both their evil, and promote their good. That every culture and government around the world is sown with corruption and yet some good. May we not put our hope solely in elected officials, but in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one true God and Father. Nothing escapes your watch. Nothing escapes your view. Forgive us for obsessing on the here and now when we need to be focused on the there and then. Help us to be faithful in the midst of whatever it is that distracts. And again, thank you that you hear this sinful man's prayers in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have had a house fire? None? I don't see my wife raising her hand. 
as one. Um, a house fire is, is an interesting, I mean, it's devastating, but interesting phenomena. We had a small fire. Cindy had a major fire in her home as a child, as a young woman. And it's interesting, anyone who's been through a fire, when you talk to the family, there's the timestamp of pre and post. Before the fire. That was before the fire. That was after the fire. That was lost in the fire. And uh, when Cindy's uh, peer get together, they had a reunion in our home a couple of years ago, and that language still comes up. That was before the fire. That was after the fire. The traumas of life can timestamp, and we think before and after those events. Um, I have these weird, if you listen to me, can you just acknowledge I'm weird? Can you give me that? I'm weird. Okay, let's just get that on the table. So I think about if our house burned down today, what would I grab? If you had 10 minutes, what would you grab? Obviously your kids, you know, your dog, cats will fare for themselves. But, you know, you <laughs> get the important things out of there, your goldfish, whatever, your hamster, your gerbil. Um, what would you grab possession-wise? It's an interesting thing to think about. It used to be photo albums, but now that's all on your computer. It used to be, you know, I don't know. But the, it, maybe because time has changed, maybe because I'm older, maybe whatever, I thought, you know, there really isn't a thing. Sure, I'd hate losing it all. And, and for those of you who've been through loss, you go, oh, I forgot we lost that. Your insurance companies will tell you, take pictures and little videos of everything you own because you will not remember and you won't. Um, and I, I think, I don't know what I'd take. Uh, those of you who know me know the story I'm going to tell already. I have uh, this gold wedding band, bands. Um, when Cindy and I got married in 1980, um, typical, you know, in those days, the wife bought the husband's ring and the husband bought the wife's ring. And um, my, I asked Cindy, would you mind? And she said, of course not. And my maternal grandmother's ring resided in my mom's little catch-22 she had in her, on top of her uh, dresser. I said, Mom, can I have Grandma's ring? She said, sure. Ironically, interestingly, it fit. Now, we don't know when she got it. We don't know how old Grandma was. She was in her teens when she was married. They came over from Italy. They immigrated over to the, to the country, and we never knew her actual birth date. But she was in her late 80s, we think, when she passed, and Mom ended up with her wedding band. And so Cindy was cool with that. So that, this is my maternal grandmother's wedding band. My father passed away, and before I could complete the sentence, Mom, can I have Dad's ring? And we checked with my siblings, and they were fine with it. And uh, he actually had two rings. He had a platinum ring that they got for some anniversary that they wore that was wafer thin from age, and this gold ring. So I took them to the jeweler, and I had them welded together. And it just is, I actually had it appraised, and it's a couple hundred bucks of gold. It's nothing. But the point is, that ring is 100 plus some years old. My dad would have been 100 this past August 24th. And I'm going, there's a legacy here that means a lot to me. You could care less. You saw it in a jeweler shop and think, yeah, I'd melt it down and make something out of it. Does it matter? Um, I don't wear them all the time. I, I have a daily ring that I wear because this is such a treasure to me. And then this ring, I don't, I'm not into jewelry, but this is just an illustration. This ring... Uh, when I finished my doctor of ministry degree, uh, Cindy's dad, who's a fascinating character, uh, called Cindy and said, uh, what would Michael do, what would he like that he'd never do for himself? And long story short, 
get a gold class ring. Gold class rings are kind of a thing of the past, but I thought if you get a doctorate, that's probably a pretty good reason to have a class ring. I don't really care, but that would be nice. Well, my father-in-law got it. That means more to me than the ring. So I have these crazy little legacies on my hand, not because I'm into jewelry, but they remind me of something that's precious to me. Um, I don't know what's precious to you. I'm not talking about people. I'm not talking about, but things, stuff, and what's attached to them. What would you take if you could? Um, This passage is about something that is more precious, more priceless, and valuable. In fact, I'm going to suggest it's the most invaluable, most priceless possession you can have, and that is wisdom. And that is what our text is teaching us today. If you've not been with us in the series of Proverbs, when we begin a series, I, I talk about resources that you may find interest. Tom Constable's notes are free. They're online in PDF or Word document. Just put the name Constable, like a sheriff, Constable, and notes. And they are the best study Bible you'll ever have for free. And then uh, Bible.org, Bible.org, that's easy to remember, it's got a plethora of resources. And then uh, the two books, if you're into books, uh, Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, is a brilliant British uh, author. He's with the Lord. But little tiny books, don't be deceived. What he writes in a short space amazes me. And then Bruce Waltke. Now, I probably wouldn't run out and buy Bruce Waltke's uh, commentary because it's fairly academic and complicated. But he has a series of sermons that uh, are online free to view. And if you just put Waltke, like W-A-L-T-K-E, you'll find them at a Believer's Chapel. It was a Sunday school lesson. He has a delightful manner, a delightful voice. He's brilliant and humble and quirky, and I love him to death. And um, there's also a very academic side of those that you can find. Those are resources that I toss out there if people want to go further. And again, since we're just resuming the series, I thought I would mention that. Waltke outlines the book of Proverbs in a way that is helpful. Proverbs, for most people, it's, yeah, these 31 chapters, and they're kind of just hodgepodge and thrown together, and there's some themes, but I don't really know how to read these things. Waltke has done a yeoman's job organizing it in a way. It's very complicated, but he delivers it in a, a way that's easy to attain, to grasp. And he calls this lecture four. Chapter three, verses 13 and 35 is lecture four. Remember, it's an older man, Solomon, who's talking to his son. That's the big picture. Son, my son. And the the woman is wisdom or wickedness. She, she, she. Those are the big parameters of the book. Wisdom is personified as a she. And you can follow wisdom or you can follow the adulteress. Certainly the literal applications of the adulteress and immorality are true, but the bigger picture of wisdom is you can follow the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. That's the story. So the personification of woman is wisdom, which is why Proverbs 31 is really not about the perfect bride or the perfect woman to find or marry or become. Proverbs 31 is the culmination. This is what wisdom looks like. Wisdom gets up early. Wisdom works late. Wisdom invests. Wisdom takes care of her family. It's not this person, with no disrespect to Proverbs 31 ministries that are all about women being a Proverbs 31 woman. Fine, knock yourself out. That's not what the passage is about. The passage is about this is what wisdom is like. So the smartest guy on the planet, if I can say that, is trying to communicate to you and me in ways we can grasp. 
They're done in, in the form of lectures until we get to chapter 10. We have not yet looked at a proverb that will only come in chapter 10. Most people don't realize that. This is all the preface for understanding. Now, I try to be an expositor, and when you think of that, you think of a verse-by-verse teacher, which is fair, but exposition isn't just verse-by-verse. What I'm trying to do in Proverbs, and as I said for those of you who've been around, this is new to me to teach this book because it is unwieldy in some ways to help you and me understand how to approach it. Sure, we can read it and cherry-pick Proverbs we like. Nothing wrong with that, but to grasp wisdom literature as a corpus, let's just say this is like graduate school for Bible study. Okay? You need to put your thinking caps on. And you're here for to learn the Scripture. That's why you're here. And that's what I'm trying to help you and encourage you to do. It's not unattainable. Anyway, so what he does in Lecture 4 is a couple of things. We're going to jump ahead of the passage, Crispy, uh, Chris, Crispy. Sorry about that. <laughs> Vicious, vicious, not crispy, right? Uh, Christy talked about the parenting and the pain of that. This is on the heels of that, that parent, <laughs> sorry, the, the parental pain, the injury of discipline is good. Um, you know, you can have a good and positive, painful memory. That's, that's countercultural, friends. You're not going to hear that today, but that's what Scripture says. You can have a good and painful, positive memory. Um, when I was 17, I took out a loan and bought a car, a truck, and my car payment was 107.47 for 36 months. I worked two part-time jobs. Of course, gas was 25 cents a gallon in those days, and I drove. No one talked about gas mileage, and I drove that truck to two part-time jobs to make that payment. I was a slave to 107.47 for 36 months, and it cured me. Before Ron Blue, before Dave Ramsey, it cured me with car payments. And so with very few exceptions, we pay cash for all of our vehicles. And when we don't, forgive me, Dave, when we don't, we had reasons that it wouldn't matter, but we did anyway. <laughs> long time ago, long time ago. Uh, today we don't do that, obviously. But in certain times of your life, you do things. Anyway, we lived under our income. We gave before we spent. Um, we put money away. And, you know, it's pretty simple. Live under your income. Uh, don't go into debt. Avoid debt if you can. Give first. Save some. Do it for a long time. It works. We learned that with Ron Blue. We've learned it ever since. There's so many resources today. Uh, Ramsey Solutions and many others crown. On and on it goes. It's endless. Doesn't matter how much money you make. The pain of my financial mistakes taught me a good thing. That, that common sense, that's all I'm trying to say. So when, when Solomon is saying the pain of chapter uh, 3, the prior verses, of the discipline is a good thing. On the heels of that, he's going to give this fourth lecture, which is the, the pricelessness of this wisdom, the possession of this wisdom. Uh, the slide that shows you the four breakdowns within lecture four, you may or may not care about this. I just throw it up there because it's a way of organizing if you're going to study this on your own to think a little bit more. Okay, look at this unit. It makes more sense. That's the point. As opposed to reading it and feeling sort of jumbled with what's he doing? Where's he going? So this is lecture number four, and these are the breakdowns. We're just going to look at verses 13 through 18. Let me read Verses 13, 14, and 15. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. There's your first parallel. 
your first couplet. Find and gain wisdom and understanding. See how easy that is to see? It's super easy to see. That's what you're starting to look for when you read through Proverbs. Now there's an explanation of this comment. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. So we're thinking about the most priceless possession available to you and me is not something we grab out of a burning home, but it's wisdom and understanding what wisdom is. First of all, he says, blessed is the one. The term blessed is one of those words that it's like glory and they're Bible words we don't use anywhere. I mean, in the South, you might say, bless your heart, which is a fun pejorative, you're really stupid statement, right? You know, so bless your heart. You know, you're really dumb, aren't you? I mean, you know. So blessing is a weird word. There are two primary words in the Old Testament, barak or barak, and this one is asher. If you have any Jewish friends or someone like the name, asher is a great name. It means happy. The problem with the translation happy in English, happy in English does not mean anything remotely like the happiness of the Bible. Um, so word uses is important. So, some English translations actually opt in the Beatitudes, happy are the poor, happy, happy, which is a terrible translation because the English reader thinks, I'm happy. No, you're not happy if you're poor. It's hard if you're poor. So there's something more going on with this word blessing. In the Old Testament, two primary terms. One, the one we're looking at here. Uh, let me say it this way. This blessing is due to man's choice. If you do this, you're going to get blessed by it. Now, that's not a spiritual blessing. That's not a works blessing. We're not talking about if I do the right thing, God gives me more favor, that we're trying to curry favor with God, the whole work salvation issue. That's not what this is talking about. That's why it's a bit of a fine point. But the blessing here he's speaking of 29 times in Proverbs, blessed is the man, is if you do this, there's benefit. Barak, or its iterations, is when we bless God. So when uh, the best chapter is in, in 1 Chronicles uh, 29, when David is blessing God for all the contributions for the temple complex that Solomon will build after David's off the scene. And he blesses God because all this that came in, he goes, only you could have motivated your people to give like this, and we're acknowledging you. These are words we don't use in English. They don't, they don't no pun intended, translate into the nomenclature, the way we talk, which is why I'm belaboring this a bit. So the idea here is blessed is the one who finds or gains. You're going to benefit if you do this. It'll be to your favor. That's all it means. Okay? So, um, my, my dad uh, turned 100 on August 24th. Um, it would have been 100. I, why, do, why do we do that? If he'd have lived, he'd have been 100. I don't know, but we do it. Uh, if my dad would have lived, he'd have been 100 on August 24th. It was also the date in 410 that the Visigoths invaded Rome. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's where a brain is a terrible thing to waste. Um, <laughs> My father was the master of sayings. My father was not perfect. My father was a good man. He was a hard man. My brother and I are four years apart. I'm, everyone wants to know. I'm 65. My big brother is four years older. My big sister is eight years older. She's the firstborn and the oldest. She's a great big sister, wonderful big sister. Uh, my brother and I are day and night. We look alike. 
We talk alike, we sound alike, we're completely different in every way. Um, his wife just passed away a few months ago. She's Cindy's in my age, and so he's going through all that whole thing. And um, I'm trying to be encouraging. But what's been interesting is talking to my brother, and the one thing we can talk about that's kind of fun is dad and our perspective of dad. And we both, in fact, my sister would say as well, dad bequeathed one thing to us, a work ethic. Now, he gave us a lot of things. He had these sayings that drove us mad that I have had great joy giving to my children. <laughs> um, but that's another story. But he had this, you know, the reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. I heard that a thousand times. The reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. So I said, man, I can't wait for Friday. He said, boy, you're wishing your life away. Boy, you're wishing your life away. Monday through Friday is five days for day and a half, really, because you're thinking about work on Sunday afternoon. Don't wish your life away. Boy, I, I didn't know my name was Michael for years. Well, boy, um, <laughs> Stephen, my brother, had the same experience. To his credit, the pain of that hardwired all three of us, actually, to work hard. We got there early, picked up a broom, weren't afraid to get our hands dirty, weren't afraid to go ask the boss, the foreman, the manager, anything else I can do. You know, it's interesting. I haven't taught young adults in a number of years when I used to. The, the idea of getting there early, getting your hands dirty, asking if you can help out is so foreign to so many in our culture. Not everyone, perhaps, but it's pretty foreign. And I, I would tell my children, guys, if you do these things, before long, you, you'll get a little raise. Before long, you might get a promotion. Because anyone who's managing people loves a person that gets there a little bit early and is willing to roll up his or her sleeves and get their hands dirty and take on an extra little thing to help out around the, the job, so to speak. We got a hardwired work ethic. I tell you this because that's a lot of what the Bible is teaching us about wisdom. You have to earn it. You have to gain it. It's hard won. It won't be handed to you. How blessed is the man because when you gain, when you go after, when you earn this, it's going to benefit you. It's very simple, but I need to sort of elaborate it because I think we, we make this over-spiritual sometimes. Um, how one attains wealth, how one gets understanding, how one gets wisdom must begin with personal choice. Again, I don't want to be unkind or indelicate or too hard on younger folks in our, in our room here or watching. Um, this book is primarily written to teenagers and you know, college-age kids. That's, that's the audience at the top level. Not that we all don't benefit, but that's what this father is telling his son. And of course, in Judaism who will tell his son and his sons and his sons. That's the, the picture, which is common sense. Wisdom is better than precious materials, better than gold, better than silver, better than anything you can dream up, even Bitcoin. It's better. Now, nothing really has changed. The ancients wanted wealth and prosperity. Money, sex, and power have always been the drivers since the fallen nature of man. And they always will be. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. And we will always be 
pulled by these things. Um, but Proverbs, as we'll see in a moment, never speaks ill of wealth. In fact, it says the person who has wisdom will gain certain things. Um, Solomon c- contrasts the spiritual and the physical in ways to explain the spiritual. Um, some of you, I, I love old movies, um, and um, I'm, I get on these vents where I watch you know, a lot of Robert Mitchum films or whatever. Bogart I love, but I have a hard time with his films for some reason. They're, they're, I don't know, I just have a hard time with them. But the Sierra Madres one is very hard for me to watch for some reason. But if you haven't seen the movie, not that you should watch it. The bottom line is, are you going to pack out all the gold and leave the water and die? That's sort of the, the, the summary of these stories. How many movies has the thief or whoever you know, hauled out the money to only die in the desert because they didn't have any water? That depicts the idea that Solomon is saying here. Wisdom is better than any tangible asset uh, you might put your value and your hope in. It ties back to chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not miss, you're doing this so you will prosper. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not a prosperity theologian. Prosperity theology is a lie from the pit of hell. Listen very carefully. The phrase, you can't outgive God, is not a terrible phrase if you understand it properly. If you say, I cannot give God, ergo, God's going to bless me, this nonsense you give tenfold or hundred, a hundredfold, I was going to say, then why don't you do that? If that's what you're shilling, why don't you do that instead of asking everybody else to give you the hundred to make ten thousand? Why don't you give ten thousand to make ten million? But that'd be too controversial. What does this proverb say? Honor, give recognition, give attribution to the one who gives it to you. Honor the Lord from your wealth. Um, I mean, if you're in antiquity and you're raising, if you're into husbandry, if you have sheep or goat, um, if you have land and you're growing a vineyard with grapes or produce, um, you want to produce a lot of grapes so you can have a lot of wine to sell. You want your animals to multiply so you can have more animals. You want the chickens to lay more eggs, right? I mean, why have 10 goats and they die? What's the point? The whole point in antiquity until today is you're building something. And as you acquire these things, you want them to produce you want them to prosper. This is the whole story of the talents or the parable of the, the, steward, the good stewards, right? The good and bad stewards. Look what he says. So your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats overflow with new wine. But he starts out, honor the Lord from your wealth. So when we get that. So we adopted this thing early in our married life. We would increase our, standard, uh, our giving before our standard of living. We were taught uh, by many good Bible teachers a tithe, a 10%. And, okay, 
Um, but I did a deep dive on tithe in the Old Testament and on giving, and especially Second Chronicle, Second Corinthians chapter eight, years ago. And I said, I don't think ten percent is generous. I think ten percent is basic requirement, minimum requirement. If I really am thankful that God's given me a hundred dollars, am I going to give Him ten? So, and and I, you know, I've gotten in trouble for telling this story. My entire life, I don't care. I'm going to tell it again. We increased our standard of giving before our standard of living, 1%, 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%, to 20 to 25% we give away. I'm not saying we're going to stop there. I'm not saying we're going to stay there. I'm just saying I never miss it. Because the vats are full. The barn's full. Now, could the barn have more in it? Sure. Could the vats have more in it? Sure. And if that's your jam, go for it. Uh, we made a decision early on that it was God's. We gave first. We have not always made the best decision with every dime we've handled, but we gave first. And we gave generously. And God's blessed. And people said, well, you shouldn't tell that story. And you know what I've learned? Those are people that don't give. So be careful when you come complain to me. <laughs> the proverb says, if you honor the Lord from your wealth, and the first, the first. Why the first? The first is a statement of faith and worship. Man, we just got a little crop that bloomed. We ought to keep that and sell it right away. No, you give it to the Lord because you're, it's a statement of faith. I'm going to trust God for the rest. And it's a choice. It's an act of worship. I choose to give you the first, not knowing about what's going to happen to the crop. Same's true today. That's why we give first. Years ago, Cindy had a hard time going from writing a check and putting in the offering to giving electronically because she felt like it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't like that. It feels like it's removed. And I, I'll, my friend, a friend of mine uh, Ralph Weitz, who talked about electronic giving, um, dear, dear friend, we talked about this, and he goes, the cost of electronic giving versus checks is so many benefits, but there is that I don't feel like I'm giving. And um, you've heard Dave Gibson, my friend, preach here. Dave, when he had a church that had uh, multiple services, three or four services, he would physically write a check at every service. I said, Dave, just give once a month. Quote, I just feel going into the house of God to study and worship. I need to put something in the plate for me as an act of worship. I kind of respect that. I'm not going to write checks every service. Point being, are you honoring God from your wealth? Um, show me a man or a woman who's giving first, avoiding debt, living under their income. I'll show you a man or a woman that's doing fine financially, even in the present economy. We had our annual checkup recently with our, our financial planners. And commercial break here, but it's also spiritual and it's also, I think, shepherding you. You need a will and you need an estate. I don't care how old you are. Put it on the calendar before the end of the year. Make an appointment. Call around. Find somebody. You've got to know somebody who's a planner and sit down with them. And not, don't just talk about your retirement. Our planners are so great because they look at everything. They looked at my health situation. They said, what are you going to do long-term disability? I don't know. They found some tools for us. 
They found some tools for college funds that we didn't distribute. They, again, please don't. I, I, I hate saying these stories because it sounds like I'm bragging or saying I made a lot of money, and that's the flack I get. I'm telling you this because you need to learn it too. And I fear nobody's telling you. It's striking how many people, even in Middle Tennessee, don't have a will or a plan. And it's really fascinating to do. We sat with our planner, and now they run the chart out to 100. They wouldn't even talk about the economy wisely. <laughs> we're not going to look at what's happened to your, your investment since. You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we're just going to talk about what you have. Because here's the hard part for us old people. What's enough? And you people in your 40s are terrified. You're starting to sweat when I say this. What's enough? Because that comes up quickly, and the question is, will I have enough so that I won't be a burden to my children or end up on the street with a, you know, did my best cardboard box out there asking for money. So the idea is I want to have enough, not be a burden, and plan for things, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. That's called good stewardship in my book. And they're planning it to 100. I said, guys, why are you doing this to 100? Can we, can we run the scale back to 90 just so I can see it? And they laughed at me, but they kept obliging me. And he said, Michael, what if you live to be 100? You need to know you're going to have enough monthly income to survive and do these things so that you're, well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? That's just stewardship. That isn't wealth management. That's just stewardship. Can I encourage you, cajole you, prod you? Get a plan. Get somebody to help you. Well, I'm not wealthy. Yeah, you live in Williamson County, you're wealthy. You're a top one percenter, I'm here to tell you. Even if you're not, you still need a plan. You still need to know how to maximize your investments, your retirements, with a sober, and I would say a Christian planner. And giving is a big part of that. Okay, come back. Not that we went off the Bible, but come back. Let's look at Proverbs. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3 talk about honoring the Lord from our wealth. In 15, he says, She, referring to wisdom, is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Now, let's, let's just be real. I mean, we're friends, right? Every one of us in this room is tempted by money, sex, and power. Every one of us in this room is tempted by bigger, better, newer, more. Let's just put it on the table. Cindy's a realtor, and um, I, I love the way she works with clients. I could never do what she does, but I love the way she talks to them. And she says, first of all, let's dispel this dream home myth. There is no dream home. You can build a home custom, and there'll be things wrong with it. There is no dream home. And stop looking at Pinterest for your next house. And things have changed. And you're never going to see the interest rates we had a couple of years ago. And uh, we remind people when we bought our first home, it was 15.75% interest on a typical mortgage. We were beneficial enough to get into an 11.7 uh, bond program because a first-time home buyer, a little window, and we were happy with 12% interest. And people were complaining because it's 4 or 5 now. Perspective helps. If you're younger, all you've known is this crazy economy. It ain't going to be that way ever again. Yeah, it could be, but more than likely, just be smart and sober about it. Money, sex, and power bothered the ancient Near Easterners just like it does you and me. They were attracted, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride of life. 
she is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. How do you set aside the money, sex, and power, lust, and drivers we have with the Scripture saying wisdom is more precious? Wisdom is more powerful. Wisdom is more important. Wisdom brings more blessing than our sin proclivity. Um, I've said it many times before, all sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Sex outside the bonds of a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage is wrong, period. It's immoral. Doesn't matter what the culture redefines or labels or changes or hates you for believing that. God provided the marriage bed for holy sexual intimacy. Power can be used in the right way or it can be used in the wrong way. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. There's a proper biblical way to use power. There's a proper biblical way to express money. There's a proper biblical way to enjoy sexual intimacy. And that was the lie when they ate of the fruit of the garden. The acquisition of material wealth can put the worshiper in a position where he or she has excess and takes advantage of money and power that come along with that. And that's why wisdom is incomparable in its wealth. Finally, wisdom is the tree of life. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is the tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are those who hold her fast. The right hand is the place of power. It's the place of the monarch. It's the place of the king. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. That's the position. Uh, The left hand here is a place of honor and recognition. And what the the Proverbs are saying is that uh, in the one side you've got the riches, you've got the power, and the left is riches and honor. I think it's intentionally saying it's it's not what's the most important. It's important, but not as important, if you will. Wealth is a desirable state, and arguably um, it's a reward. But it's not the aim of life. It's a good thing to have wealth. It's a good thing to have prosperity. It's a good thing your agriculture grows. It's a good thing your herds produce. It's a good thing your vineyards produce a lot of grapes. It's a good thing your job and your investments produce. It's what you do with that that God is very interested in, and that is where wisdom is. Recall, when Solomon became king, what did he ask of God? What do you want? I want wisdom to rule this great people of yours. Well, since you have asked for wisdom and not for wealth and power, I will give you wealth and power and wisdom. Interesting, isn't it? God knows the heart. He knows how we look at these things. How he handled that became the issue. So the wisest or smartest guy on the planet did not execute as well as he has taught others. Wealth and honor become the test of our metal. How do we use it? Verse uh, verse 4, Proverbs 22, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Which I think is a flip of the way we think about it. If you're humble and you fear God, he rewards you with the things that we're after. We're after those things thinking 
Once we get them, we'll be humble and we'll live wisely. It's just the opposite. Verse 18 reveals the wonderful conclusion of this, the tree of life. The tree of life is an ancient Near Eastern term that they would understand completely tied back to the garden, Genesis chapter 2, a couple of times, Genesis chapter 3. The tree of life, um, we're not trying to go back to the garden. Some of our hymnology and uh, Christian modern contemporary music talks about going back to the garden. It's not really accurate. We're not trying to get back there and uneat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, what we're to do is to take hold of, in fact, verse 18, to take hold of her and hold her fast. And the idea is if you grasp the wisdom that God's offering, that, in a sense, is being back in the garden. That's the man who will be blessed. And chapters, verses 13 to 18 are now the perfect chiasm. We started out with how blessed is the man, and we end up in the last verse, how blessed is the one who holds these things. Lesson, simple. Right out of the text, are you holding fast to Christ Jesus? It may sound a little esoteric or academic, but in a world where we're working hard to make things work in our marriage and our parenting and our money and our jobs, and you fill in the blank and, and we're worried about it, and uh, we're all up in arms about politics and debt. Forgiveness and all kinds of stuff can distract us. Are you holding fast to Jesus Christ? He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God. Do you think he's anxious or pained or worried about such? Do you think he's pacing heaven's floor because America's economy is a disaster? Do you think he doesn't sleep at night? Not that he would need to. Do you think Jesus loses sleep over who's in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? He's the sovereign God. You hold fast to wisdom. You make decisions that will benefit you and be blessed. Very simply, are you faithful with what God has given you? That is more important than being successful. Are you faithful with what he's given you? And in that, you hold fast to Jesus. We sang about a first prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Amen. Uh, we sang about he will return in robes of white. We sang these great lines. We're going to sing an Andrew Peterson song, He is Worthy, a powerful, powerful piece that ties this together. Um, a broken world, sorrows, uh, groanings. And the question becomes, in, in the mire of chemotherapy, broken marriages, arguments in the home, financial difficulties, um, a dear friend of mine's daughter decided she's trans. On and on these things go. Um, is Christ there? Does he love you? The world's a mess. Because we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. But your God is sovereign. And he's secure. Hold fast to him. Not your idea of who he is. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that wisdom's available if we enact, if we approach, if we hold fast, if we gain it. So we come humbly asking, help us, help us to trust you because you are worthy.